The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 2, Saturday, April 1st, 2023. Rios, come in. Are you there? Rios, you read me. Rios! Hey everybody, this is your host Peter with the 39th Digest of this second volume covering Monday, March 27th through Friday, March 31st, 2023. Marvel Saga Monday, Part 20, taking a look at the official history of the Marvel Universe, issue number 20. This is by writer-researcher Peter Sanderson, and according to the letter column, uh, what Peter doesn't know, he checks with Marvel Index writer George Olszewski. And those index are also, you know, those titles are also a lot of fun as well. The front cover by John Buscema. It's been Keith Pollard since issue number nine, but for the first time, uh, we have a new artist. We also have just a few captions here. Uh, The first caption, it's Doctor Doom versus the Fantastic Four and Daredevil from Fantastic Four 39 by Jack Kirby and Chick Stone. Uh, The cover matching, those two covers matching plus Doctor Strange, Thor, and the Death of the Hulk. And some of those are on the back issue, on or the back cover. The back cover is by Keith Pollard and Jose Marzan Jr., featuring the new Avengers versus the Minotaur, which is from issue number 17, and Banner Lying Dead with Rick Jones, Thunderbolt Ross, Talbot, uh, the Hulk, all of them looking on from Tales to Astonish 69, the cliffhanger to that issue. Now, most of the Marvel Saga covers are wraparound, and even if they don't necessarily cross over the spine, they still work as a wraparound. This is the first time I felt like you have a very real front cover and a back cover image because there's this strange white border around the image for the back. I mean, this is, you know, some a small point, but I when I noticed it, I was like, oh, this doesn't feel like a wraparound anymore. It feels like a front and back cover, which is odd. All the stories in this issue are pulled from Avengers 17, Fantastic Four 38 through 43, Journey into Mystery 116 through 118, Strange Tales 136, Tales to Astonish 27, and 67 through 71. These are all books published in spring or summer of 1965. So, Marvel Saga issue 20, book 20, The Battle Eternal. Starting off page 1 through 3, where we left off in issue 19, with Thor and the Trial of the Gods, or at least the aftermath of that. Um, The first page is a real good exposition page of what the Trial of the Gods is. A contest between Loki and Thor to determine who is telling the truth about a recent squabble, and how Loki cheated and continues to cheat, and now Thor has to prove it. And it's a lot of coverage between this issue and the previous two issues for a story that, I don't know, maybe was monumental at the time, but as I read it, I'm like, eh, it's okay. Uh, We do get some new splash page art by Al Milgram based on Journey into Mystery 116. Page four, we check in with Captain America's kooky quartet, and they are intent on searching for the Hulk 
to add strength to their roster now that they have Hawkeye and Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. Last issue we saw how uh, Hawkeye was not impressed by Cap. And this issue we see that even Pietro has ideas of becoming the leader of the Avengers, which is, you know, not not such a weird uh, notion considering Quicksilver's place on the team and his history and his and his dad Magneto, which we don't know just yet in, in Marvel Saga continuity. Um, he's always felt like a lesser character in terms of importance, so for him to think that he could be leader, I wrote here, yikes. Pages 5 and 6 are just short snippets or interludes where we check in on Thor. He is searching for the Nornstones, um, which Loki used to cheat during the trial. We have Hulk coming back to Banner's home and Banner getting arrested again. And Doctor Strange is still on his quest for the answer to what is eternity. All of these things get covered later on in the issue. And then we have pages 7 through 16 and 16 through 21 detailing two Fantastic Four adventures. And it's odd to see these two large sequences in the middle of the book like this, all for one title. Probably explains why Marvel did those short little snippets on page 7. So the first group of pages focuses on Fantastic Four from issue 39 and 40 as they battle Doctor Doom with the help of Daredevil. So the Fantastic Four are still powerless. Matt Murdock is their lawyer, so he's helping them out. And somewhere, wherever Doom is in Latveria, he wakes up from a hypnotized suggestion that the Fantastic Four have been defeated. And that was something that happened in a previous encounter. So, of course, he's like, oh, well, then let me go attack them. Um, He takes over the Baxter building. Daredevil and the team are trying to get back into the building. I love this line by Daredevil. It's no picnic being a sitting duck for a marksman like Dr. Doom, but it'll be great for my rep if I survive. Which is funny, right? Because he has gone up against Namor, and now he's going up against Dr. Doom. You know, a character like Daredevil, that seems odd. Uh, With the help of a device entitled the Stimulator, the Fantastic Four finally get their powers back, and we get this pretty great sequence of the Thing against Dr. Doom. You know, large Kirby panels. It's a total brawl, right? It's not the battle of wits like you get with Reed and Doom. It is just strength and determination, and it's a fight. And um, it's pretty great, you know. I'm sure the original issue probably has more more to it. So then we get the aftermath of this story in pages 16 through 21. This is from Fantastic Four, issues 41 through 43, where they go up against the Frightful Four again. This time, the Thing is being mind-controlled. He had left the group yet again because now he's back to being the Thing yet again. Um, the Frightful Four, they, they've they just had a lot of coverage since their first appearance. Uh, and this uh, bout doesn't get resolved in this issue. It'll carry over to next issue as well. One thing I noticed as they were Printing the images, some of the images from those issues by Jack Kirby. The inks were by Vince Coletta, and wow, what a difference, right? We don't need to go into that. But when I was looking at it, I was I was like, is this Jack Kirby? And then I went and checked the issue. It was like, oh yeah, Jack Kirby with Vince Coletta. Wow. It feels very um, 
very non-detailed. It's like he took out all the detail work. It's crazy. All right, pages 21 through 22, Dr. Strange on search for his, uh, on his search for the answers behind the word eternity. He meets uh, the aged Genghis in Strange Tales 136, which puts him up against, you know, some, some other villain at the time. But I thought that was cool because this connects all the way to the Daily Rios episode 596 from January of this year, which was a book club episode with Chris Beckett on the Marvel graphic novel Doctor Strange, Doctor Doom, Triumph and Torment by Roger Stern and Mike Mignola because the aged Genghis is in that issue, which is where I read him first and then came to this Marvel Saga issue and I was like, oh look, there he is. This is his first appearance in Strange Tales 136. Pages 22 through 23, again, more short snippets, checking back in on Thor. I think it's a little bit of an odd inclusion at this point from where we left off earlier in the book. And then we get some Namor stuff against Lord Krang, trying to go after the throne. Lady Dorma is here, trying to get Namor to love her. Um, And Namor wants to find uh, the trident of Neptune to prove that he is the true heir to the throne. And when I read this little bit, plus some stuff later in the issue, I thought, wait a minute, this is the entire plot to Aquaman, isn't it? The first movie, I think. (laughs) You know, having to find the trident and then take over the throne. Yeah, weird. Uh, There is new art on page 22, panel one, by Al Milgram from Strange Tales 136, featuring Doctor Strange fighting some villain that controls masks. Pages 24 through 30, the saga mixes what is going on in the Avengers title with what is going on in the Hulk title as he fights the leader and as the Avengers are trying to uh, find the Hulk. We have uh, a soldier that shoots the Hulk as he's transforming back into Banner. So then everyone, including Rick Jones, thinks that he's dead. So then Rick takes his body and takes uh, the body to Banner's uh, lab, hidden lab, and zaps him with gamma radiation again for like the eighth time now. And this brings about the change where Hulk is, um, once again, uh, he has the mind of Banner, and the bullet is lodged in his brain, so now he can't ever become Banner again, or he will, I guess, die. But yeah, more radiation for this creature in the what? two to three years that he's been around. That's just crazy. Uh, New art on page 28, panel three, also by Al Milgram from Tales to Astonish 70 and 71. It's basically just a snippet of Namor battling a sea creature. Page 31, uh, this Thor sequence continues to trot on, and now we are setting up the events for Thor's eventual first confrontation with the Destroyer, but that'll be for next issue. And then 32, page 32, ends with the Fantastic Four and the Frightful Four again. This time Johnny Storm is in peril, and that is our cliffhanger, and that's where this issue ends. Honestly, I feel like this issue is a little bit of a stretch in terms of what they're trying to cover. You know, Sanderson and company are covering some things that I'm like, okay, you're I see what you're doing. You're loving the fact that all these stories are happening simultaneously, but we're not really getting like major moments, I feel. It feels like they're trying to cover 
just way too much, especially considering I know that there's only five more issues. I don't know if they know there's only five more issues, but I know. And it's like, come on, let's get back to just tell these events, but you don't have to go into such detail, right? Um, There is no cover gallery on the inside back cover with this issue. It's replaced with all of the blurbs for next month, which I don't mind so much. Uh, It gives more room for the saga, right, on that final page. But you can feel like with this issue, there's, I don't know, just this issue is very different from the previous issues in many ways. So we'll have to see if that carries over with next month when we get to issue number 21. Timeline Trivia Tuesday for March 2023, Part 2, taking a look at 40, 50, and 60 years ago in terms of some comic history, first issues, last issues, some events, some creator uh, events or creator anniversaries, etc. So we start with 40 years ago, March of 1983, Action Comics 554, is the 45th anniversary special revamping Lex Luthor and Brainiac. And this is where we get the Luthor battlesuit designed by George Perez. And we get the new robotic Brainiac uh, designed by Ed Hannigan. And these stories are by Carrie Bates, Kurt Swan, Murphy Anderson, Marv Wolfman, Gil Kane. No doubt all this happened because the Superpowers toy line is coming in 1984. So it makes sense to give, you know, Superman's two big baddies, uh, you know, a different look. So maybe that they can, uh, you know, have some accessories and things. But I have to imagine um, that was some of the impulse there. We have from Marvel, from Epic, Coyote number 1, the first issue of 16. Uh, after first appearing in Eclipse magazine, this is by Steve Englehart and Steve Lealoa. This is about the character of Sylvester Santangelo, a shape-shifting hero versus the criminal organization called the Shadow Cabinet, an international conclave dedicated to toppling the North American government. And this title, with issue number 11, would feature Todd McFarlane's first published work. From Eclipse Comics, we have DN Agents number one, created by Mark Evanier and Will Munyet. Uh, 24 issues this would run, the characters of Amber, Rainbow, Sham, Surge, Tank. Uh, we would then get new DN agents, would, which would run for 17 issues. And there were some spinoffs, including Surge, Crossfire, and Crossfire and Rainbow. I love the DN agents. I, I didn't pick them up off the rack. I mostly got them in back issue bins wherever I could, and I didn't read them all. But I enjoyed that creative team, or I should say I enjoyed that um, that team because it was an independent superhero comic, but it also was slightly adult as well. Issue 14 of DN Agents would feature the crossover with the new Teen Titans. And in the DN Agents book, they were called Project, Project Youngblood. And in Tales of the Teen Titans 48, the DN Agents were called The Recombatants. So it wasn't exactly, it was more a crossover in the sense that, oh, look, these characters are obviously modeled after the DNA agents, but um, that was kind of fun. And I swear, the makeup of these characters, right? You got Tank, who's a big guy. You have Surge, who is um, 
not the leader, but he's kind of like the male uh, central figure. Uh, you have Amber, who's like the young girl that has powers. And then you have Rainbow, who's like the older girl, uh, who's a little mysterious. And then you have Sham, who's like the little kid. That makeup of characters, I swear Burn took that makeup and used it for the next men. And I know some of that could also be because of like the X-Men themselves from Giant Size, but this one really matches up. Like Surge matches up with one of the characters in Next Men, Tank matches up, Sham as the young kid, uh, Amber as as I think her name was Jazz, and Rainbow, you know, the in the Next Men it was the the woman that was invulnerable. I mean, it just it just really feels like they're cut from the same cloth. All right. Also, 40 years ago, March of uh, 1983, we have Thing number one. Speaking of John Byrne, this was written by John Byrne with art by Ron Wilson and Joe Sinnott. This would run for 36 issues. And that first issue, we got a real in-depth origin for Ben Grimm. I read a lot of that run all the way through, you know, he stayed on the Secret Wars planet all the way through his wrestling stuff. I might have read the entire run, for all I remember. Uh, we had the first appearance of the Morlocks in Uncanny X-Men 169, and in 170, this was the battle between Storm and Callisto for the control of the Morlocks. We had some anniversaries this month in 1983, Adventure Comics 500, that would only run up to issue 503, and at that time was in the digest format. And Legion of Superheroes 300 uh, started off as Superboy, and then Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes. And March of 83 could also be the 25th anniversary of the Legion from their first appearance in 1958. Your question comes from the following comic that came out in March of 1983, 40 years ago. Omega Man number 3. By Roger Slipher, Keith Giffen, Mike DiCarlo, Anthony Tallon, John Costanza, edited by Marv Wolfman. That issue would give us the first appearance of Lobo. Keith Giffen said, I have no idea why, Lo why Lobo took off. I came up with him as an indictment of the Punisher Wolverine hero prototype, and somehow he caught on as the high-violence poster boy. He later stated that Lobo and Ambushbug were derived from Lunatic, a character that he created in high school. So your question, sort of, sort of a, ge a geography question, Lobo is known as the last Zarnian, but in his early appearances, what race did he belong to? That's a tricky question. Remember, Lobo looked very different in his first appearances, and it wasn't until much later that he sort of got a revamp. So in his initial appearances, he was a member of a different race. Let's go 50 years ago, March of 1973, Amazing Spider-Man 121 by Jerry Conway, Gil Kane, John Romita, and Tony Mart Martellaro, Roy Thomas editor, the night Gwen Stacy died. This could be a huge turning point. Uh, well, as it, as it says on the cover <laughs> for Marvel Comics. Marvel Comics, many people think this is when Marvel grew up. Some people also um, mark this as, uh, if not the start of the Bronze Age, certainly the epitome of the Bronze Age, I guess you could say. This also would lead the way for Mary Jane Watson and uh, 
we get the famous um, cliffhanger, you killed the woman I love, and for that you're going to die, as Spider-Man screams at the Green Goblin. Also 50 years ago, Daredevil 100, by Steve Gerber and Gene Colan, first appearance of Angar the Screamer. Avengers 112 is the first appearance of Mantis. Superman 264 is the first appearance of Steve Lombard by Carrie Bates and Kurt Swan. Superman 264 is the first appearance of Steve Lombard by Carrie Bates and Kurt Swan. So all of those characters uh, celebrating 50 years. And then your question from Superboy 195 featuring the first appearance of Wildfire by Carrie Bates and Dave Cockrum in in a story entitled The One-Shot Hero. Wildfire's human name is Drake Burroughs. Your question, what code name did Wildfire go by in that issue, in that issue of Superboy 195? He was not called Wildfire on his first appearance. What was his code name? And then 60 years ago, March of 1963, Adventure Comics 308, we have the first appearance of Lightning Lass, Lightning Lad's twin sister, also the first appearance of Prody. Justice League of America 19, this was when all the members decided to reveal their identities to each other. Uh, Action Comics was celebrating 300 issues 60 years ago. Fantastic Four 15 had the first appearance of Mad Thinker, the awesome android, and the actual appearance of the Yancey Street Gang. Tales to Astonish 44 by Stan Lee, Ernest Hart, Jack Kirby, and Don Heck. In a story entitled The Creature from Cosmos, we have the first appearance of Janet Van Dyne, the Wasp. So 60 years ago in March of 1963. And your final question for this segment comes from Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos number 1, released 60 years ago in March of 1963, again by Stan Lee. Jack Kirby, and Dick Ayers. This was the first appearance of Nick Fury, the first appearance of the Howling Commandos. It would run for 167 issues all the way through to 1981. Your question, in the opening pages of this issue, we are introduced to the six other Howling Commandos. What are their names? So not including Nick Fury. What are the six other members as shown in those early pages, they were kind of like pinup pages almost. What were their names? All right, these questions might have been a little hard. So from 40 years ago, Omega Man number three, Lobo was not a Zarnian. In his first appearances, he was a Valorpian. Valorpian. From 50 years ago, Superboy 195, in his first appearance, Wildfire went by the name of Erg dash one erg dash one and 60 years ago the other members of the howling commandos include dum dum dugan that's probably an easy one gabriel jones robert rebel ralston jonathan jr juniper izzy cohen and dino minnelli so those are your six howling commandos as featured in the opening pages of issue number one. There you go, some comic history and trivia for the month of March. I think being in America has really allowed me to understand my cultural heritage and my own struggle with cultural heritage is 
is such an important part of my life experience that it was something that I wanted to struggle with on paper. Hi, my name is Gene Yang. I am the creator of American Born Chinese, which is a graphic novel about creating an identity for yourself in America. Most of us have a desire to belong and to be part of something. Everyone comes from some sort of cultural heritage and has something to share. I chose American Born Chinese as the title because I feel like that accurately reflects the, the identity that I've arrived at. My Chinese heritage definitely informs the way that I'm an American. I think that that just comes with being in a place like America. America can really be seen as a community of individuals and, and comics is a very, very individualistic pursuit. When you're a comic book creator, you can tell these really intimate stories. It really is something that expresses who you are and the, and the choices you've made. What I've really appreciated about America is that it's allowed me to make my own choices about what pieces of you you can change and what pieces of you New Comics Wednesday. New Comics Wednesday recommendations for the week of March 29th, starting off with first, second, the movie edition for American Born Chinese, the graphic novel, although I think it's a TV series, right? By Jean Luing Yang. This graphic novel tells the story of Jin Wang, who moves to a new neighborhood with his family only to discover that he's the only Chinese-American student at his school. Also, the powerful Monkey King, subject of one of the oldest and greatest tales from Chinese folklore, and Chin Qi, a personification of the ultimate negative Chinese stereotype, who is ruining his cousin Danny's life with his yearly visits. Their three lives and stories come together with an unexpected twist in a 21st century fable that is hilarious, poignant, and action-packed. This is $14.99. From Titan Comics, we have Astroneer Countdown, the graphic novel, for fans of the Astroneer video game. It's an all-new, all-ages adventure set in the universe created by the developer System Era. And it has multiple stories, and inside each graphic novel, readers can redeem a unique, exclusive, cosmetic game code. Now, I'm not a gamer, but this story, or, or this graphic novel, has a story by David Dwanch, who I talked about in Last Digest with the title of Banshees. So, Astroneer Countdown graphic novel, $13.99. From tomorrow's back issue 142, the super issue starring Superboy in the Bronze Age, Interviews with Gerard Christopher, Stacey Hyduck of the Superboy live-action TV series, plus Super Goof, Super Richie Rich, Super Dagwood, Super Mario Brothers, Frank Thorne's Far Out Green Super Cool, Nick Meglin and Jack Davis's Superfan, and much more. Featuring a Superboy and Crypto cover by Dave Cockrum, edited by Michael Yuri. that is $10.95. Stacey Hyduck. Does anybody remember Kindred, the Embraced TV series? I used to watch her on that all the time. From DC, we have Dawn of the DC, more titles, Unstoppable Doom Patrol, number one of six, by Dennis Culver and Chris Burnham and company. The world's strangest heroes are back in the DC universe. After the events of Lazarus Planet, 
More people than ever have active metagenes. Most of these new metahumans have become misfits, shunned and imprisoned by a fearful society. They are hidden away in the dark, lost to a system that only sees them as weapons or guinea pigs, ticking time bombs that can only be diffused by the unstoppable Doom Patrol. And they are made up of Robot Man, Elastowoman, Negative Man, and new teammates, Beast Girl, Degenerate, and uh, Crazy Jane's mysterious new alter, The Chief. $3.99. So we got a Beast Girl, just like we have a Beast Boy. Also from Dawn of DC, Harlequin, number 28, picks up the banner for $4.99, written by Teeny Howard, with art by Sweeney Boo. Um, I'm coming to Teeny's writing from Catwoman, which I'm reading in anticipation of the dawn of DC. Uh, I went back to Catwoman 48 and, um, it's okay. You know, you got some crime families, you got Batman, you got Catwoman and Punchline, her new boyfriend Valmont. Uh, the early arc by Nico Leon is very good in Catwoman. The writing and the dialogue is decent, you know, unlike other dialogue-driven books lately that I've been reading, this one actually gave me what I needed to know in terms of the story, the plot, the characters, the characterization. Um, it reads very much like a romance buddy book between issues 48 and 50. Um, so, you know, um, Harley Quinn is not a character that I enjoy reading in her own title, much like Deadpool. I'd rather read her as a guest appearance or whatever. Um, I don't know how much of Harley Quinn I will read, but I will give at least the first Dawn of DC entry a try because it's a new creative team. And I do like Sweeney Boo. Also, we have the much-delayed Waller vs. Wildstorm miniseries, one of four uh, from Black Label. Written by Spencer Ackerman and Evan Narcissi. I don't know their name. Uh, I don't know their work. Art by Jesus Marino. And this takes place in the early 80s as the Cold War stubbornly refuses to thaw. A new battle heats up for the soul of the intelligence agency Checkmate. Uh, we have Jackson King, the Armored Battalion, former leader of Stormwatch, and the symbol of American might. Uh, as the public face for Checkmate, and he has long suspected that Adeline Kane is up to dirty tricks overseas, engineering horrors that betray everything he believes about service to one's country. But King doesn't know that Kane has a new ally, an ambitious young woman named Amanda Waller. She has her own ideas about how metahumans can serve their country, and honor, dignity, and long lives don't factor into them. Celebrate Wildstorm's legacy of espionaged-flavored superhero morality plays, pitting Stormwatch against the deadliest people in the DCU, including Deathstroke himself. So it's very much a a new origin of Amanda Waller. Feels kind of like the Janus Directive, if you know that story arc. This first issue is $5.99. And there you go. Those are your recommendations for the week of March 29th. L'amour, l'amour. That's French for love. Dear Reader, Season 2. Join me, Stella, as I look at the 1936 play The Women by Claire Booth Luce and its three cinematic adaptations from 1939, 1956, and 2008. 
Does the play highlight the complicated aspects of female friendship or display the cattiness of women when in competition with each other and with time? Listen and find out. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcasting Network. Mary Haynes, what is all this? <laughs> I've had two years to grow claws, Mother. Jungle Ray! A little theater news for this Thursday segment. Announced this week, Actors Equity launches a political action committee. So Actors Equity Association is the union for theater actors, uh, you know, for people, anybody who performs in New York, most touring shows, although not all. In fact, there's been some discussion about trying to uh, better the contracts for a lot of these touring companies. Um, but Actors' Equity, I belong to Actors' Equity. I've been a member since 2006, the end of 2006. And it's um, the union that you pay, you know, yearly for. And then when you work in an equity show, you know, you obviously get better rates, but you also get, you can get weeks towards your health care. And, um, you know, there's some rules and things like that. So it's a, it's a union that, you know, when you're a professional theater performer, um, not to say that you can't make a living outside of the union, you know, with local productions and regional theaters, um, but for someone who wants to make a living, you know, it makes sense to join the union. So anyway, the union, the Actors' Equity, um, they have moved to create a political action committee that will operate independently to advance the political interests of Equity's membership. The theatrical union represents more than uh, 51,000 actors and stage managers working on professional stages nationwide, including most Broadway shows. The committee will will be empowered to make campaign contributions in federal elections. Decisions made by a board comprising of current equity members, leaders, and staff, the group will be funded via voluntary donations from equity members rather than union dues or other funds. Uh, this I'm just reading the press release they gave out here. This is the ne- next natural step in the political and legislative work equity has been doing over the past few years. COVID-19 starkly revealed that arts workers need a more powerful seat at the table. While we're proud of what we've accomplished, we strongly believe that this PAC can do more to ensure that elected officials listen to us and respond to our members' needs. And this comes from the current AEA president and Broadway actor Kate Schindel. Um, it, this PAC joins a few other entertainment unions with PACs, including the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, the American Federation of Musicians, the Writers Guild of America West, and the Directors Guild of America. So this is not something unique to to, uh, Actors' Equity or to theater actors. Um, Importantly, Actors' Equity wanted to have the organization in place ahead of the 2024 election. There's concern that funding for the arts may face further cuts. The union also sees an opportunity to help flip House seats in New York that went to Republican candidates in the last election to what they call pro-worker candidates. This could control, uh, this could determine control of the U.S. House. The priorities for the PAC will include continued funding for the National Endowment for the Arts, the passage of the PRO Act, which many unions are backing, as it offers greater uh, protections 
to workers trying to organize, and the passage of equity, diversity, and inclusion priorities, including the Crown Act, which prohibits discrimination based on hairstyle and texture. The union will also continue to push for the Performing Arts Tax Parity Act, which raises the income ceiling for artists to deduct certain performance-related expenses. That's definitely important. Overall, the union will look to support issues such as universal health care, reasonable gun legislation reform, and non-discrimination and LGBTQ plus rights. So, yeah, you know, what's... <laughs> What's a way to get power into the hands of a group that um, wants to be represented? I mean, this is no different than other PACs that have their hooks into um, certain members of the government, and then we can't get anything done in terms of legislation um, or in terms of helping people. So this is great. This was when I saw this, and I, I've been notified about this through emails and through, you know, paper mail, um, that this is working uh, that this has now been done, and I don't have a link to any website or anything like that, but if that sounds like a cause that is worth uh, donating to, I'm sure there are methods to do that. So, um, yay to the power of um, people in the arts. Certainly COVID-19, um, everything that happened in 2020, that was, you know, decimating for a lot of people in the arts and it was they struggled to get unemployment and struggled to get assistance and um, theater struggled and you know not many people well I mean there's a group of people that didn't go back to theater I'm one of them you know I didn't go back for various reasons um, but uh, this looks like um, you know we'll keep watch on what this means to the larger artist community I just felt like it was something important to uh, discuss or at least present here on the Digest for this week. Closing out this Digest this week and this month of March with a Five for Friday segment. Haven't done one of these probably in a long time or maybe ever. Uh, five topics that didn't make the cut elsewhere in this Digest, but I wanted to drop for those interested and just to give some quick thoughts on some of these topics. Um, some of this is news, some are celebrations, and some podcast recommendations as well. Um, I will do feedback in the next digest to give people time to respond to this digest since it is the final week uh, at the end of March. All right, so five for Friday. Here we go. Starting off, March 26th was the 75th birthday of Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, born in 1948. I certainly talk about uh, Garcia Lopez as much as I can or when I can. He is the GOAT. He is the greatest of all time when it comes to comics, draftsmanship, and um, style guides, and uh, really just knowing how to um, present a character in their most iconic nature. I mean, I could. that's just one of the things that he's brilliant as. He does have an Instagram page, if you want to follow him, Garcia Lopez 9954 where he posts a lot of older work, but, you know, occasionally some new work as well. So happy birthday to that living legend. We had two 
news drops on March 29th, starting with a new Jonathan Hickman series entitled Gods with artist Valerio Schitti, who I know uh, Valerio's artwork from Journey into Mystery with the character of Sif that was running during the first Marvel Now wave. The uh, title for this or subtitle for this is What Happens When the Powers That Be Meet the Natural Order of Things. So when Hickman wrote the Bible for House of X, he wrote a second Bible, and it was this, it was God's. And he says, God's takes place in its own special corner of the Marvel Universe, in the cracks that lie at the intersection of science and magic, and revisits some characters and concepts that we've reimagined for a more modern, continuity-driven audience. And when you look at the title, God's, it is an acronym. So, um... I don't know what it stands for just yet, but it's G period, O period, etc., etc. Meet Win, a mysterious player in a war that exists outside of the orders we know, and a vital member of an eons-old hierarchy that includes the omnipotent rulers of the universe, such as Eternity, Infinity, and the Living Tribunal. After a fateful meeting with Doctor Strange, Win hints at something even bigger than the forces of good and evil, where the very building blocks of creation scheme and clash. It's the beginning of a breathtaking epic at the crossroads of science and magic, one that will shatter our understanding and open our eyes to ideas beyond all that we perceive. This was teased at last year's San Diego Comic-Con, and then we had some design work featuring updates of characters that possibly might be Eternity or Infinity or the Living Tribunal, I don't know what any of this has to do with like all the stuff that Al Ewing has been playing around with over the years. There will be a preview in Marvel's 2023 free comic book day issue uh, for Avengers X-Men number one available on May 6th. Um, again, this feels like this is probably something closer to what he was doing with S.H.I.E.L.D. rather than than uh, Fantastic Four or with the X-Men stuff, but I am all in. It looks great. It sounds great. Um, yeah, I'm all in, especially because I'm someone I've gone on record, you know, probably over the last, well, geez, since like when Annihilation first started in the 2000s, I'm totally ready for Marvel cosmology to move beyond Jim Starlin. And I know that it has, like I mentioned, Al Ewing, right? Um, I'm ready for, I'm, I'm open to the idea that other creators can look at the Marvel cosmology and do something different. You know, when Keith Giffen and company took over the Thanos book and wrote that Samaritan storyline right before Annihilation in the early 2000s and also wrote Drax and they just kind of used the characters differently than the Starlin stuff. I was all for it. I was totally all for it. Um, the little that I read of Al Ewing, what he's doing, great, love it, you know. Eventually it all went back to Jim Starlin and it went back to Thanos and the Infinity stuff because of the movies, blah, 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 blah. Um, but I I love when someone else takes a look at it and does things differently. So hopefully that's what Hickman will do. The other news drop, probably more important to Marvel Comics, uh, Disney has now absorbed Marvel Entertainment, and that meant huge layoffs of 7,000 employees, and it finally sends Chairman Ike Perlmutter packing. He is no longer 
part of or in control of Marvel Entertainment, which is really what? Like the comics, the toys, I think, and maybe maybe some TV stuff, or at least he used to be. Um, probably by the time you hear this, you know, you already have read, heard about this and, and there's been some new information that might have dropped. Uh, this is a move that many people thought would happen at DC. Uh, that DC would get absorbed by some one of their parent company's divisions, but nope, happened to Marvel, and Marvel Entertainment is now absorbed into other Disney units. So Marvel Entertainment's co-president, Rob Steffens, and chief counsel, John Turretson, they were also dismissed. Dan Buckley, who is the president of the division, is staying and will now report to Marvel Studios' chief, Kevin Feige. There you go. CEO Bob Iger's decision to sever Perlmutter's control of Marvel Studios in 2015, which eventually reduced Marvel Entertainment to not much more than consumer products and comic book publishing, most likely is what, you know, caused all this eventually to happen. We will see what this actually means in terms of, you know, now Disney is absorbing this, you know, publishing side of things, and they certainly have their own publishing side of things. What does it mean now that Dan Buckley, Buckley is going to uh, report to Kevin Feige? Will the the comics and the movies match even more? I guess we're going to find out. So uh, huge news, huge news, and a lot of uh, layoffs. So that's not, that's never a good thing. All right, number four for my Five for Friday. Uh, we have a new podcast entitled My Father Before Me, and the first episode dropped on March 23rd. This podcast is where a Gen X dad makes his teenage son watch the movies and TV shows that he grew up with. Why am I talking about this, and why might you be interested? Well, because the dad, the host, is Brian Perillo, uh, one of the hosts of the Uncanny X-Cast, and his son Connor is his uh, co-host, or, you know, they're both hosts. And they are going through, um, just like he said, all the stuff that Brian, all the movies that and TV shows that Brian grew up with, and they started this first episode with The Breakfast Club. So I am so looking forward to that. And then finally, for this Five for Friday, you may have heard uh, a promo that I've been dropping here and there that sounds like the Baby Shark song, you know, and it's uh, uh, for the JL May uh, promotion. Well, this is JL May. It's a podcast crossover event that happens in May in celebration of the Justice League. And in previous years, they covered the Silver Age event, the Justice Maxi series, Origins of the JLA, JLA Year One, that Maxi series. And every podcast that participates, they cover one issue or maybe a few more others. Um, and the idea is that we release the episode on the date in May that coordinates with the issue number of whatever title we're covering. So JL May 2023 is going to cover the Brave and the Bold series that began in the 2000s with uh, writer Mark Wade and artist George Perez. And then eventually, you know, it moved to other creative teams. Uh, so all the participating podcasts will cover one issue and some are covering more than one issue. And um, I'm going to be covering, with Eric, for the Legion Project, we are going to be covering issue number five of Brave, Brave and the Bold, which features Batman and the Legion of Superheroes. 
and that will drop in May on May 5th, since it is the fifth issue. So if you've been hearing that promo, that's what it's about. Yet another podcast crossover event, which I always love to participate in. So when that does drop, I'm sure I will give you some more feedback. There you go. That's it for this week. Uh, as always, email me, peter at thedailyrios.com. Send a comment on the website, The Daily Rios. Go visit my Instagram, The Daily Rios. Go follow me on Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Review me on your favorite podcast catcher, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify. If I'm not there, let me know. Uh, I got in my email an, another invitation to join Amazon Music. I don't know. Maybe I should. Uh, if you have a book club rec- book club recommendation, let me know. Uh, send me some promos for your podcast or your comic or whatever. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 610 for Saturday, April 1st, 2023. See, I didn't pull one April Fool's prank here. Uh, Talk to you soon. Bye. I am Janet Van Dyne, but you may call me the Wasp. Watch. The pill I took enlarges or reduces. My partner is Henry Pym, also known as Giant Man. Isn't he a gorgeous hunk of superhero?